is so great to have you all here. So great to see everybody, uh, old and new to Spark. So um, we really appreciate you uh, being able to join us this evening. We are in the middle of our series in the Gospel of John. So we're, we're around chapters 8, 9, and 10, and we're, we're in the part of the Gospel where there are dialogues that Jesus has with religious leaders with uh, increasing intensity in each of those dialogues. So we're actually going to cover today uh, John chapter 8, one of, the, uh, one of the longer dialogues that occurs. Um, and so we'll, we'll get uh, into it, but for those of you who have been uh, following along with the series, you may know that one of the things we're doing is we're keeping track of the different I am statements that occur in the Gospel of John. And this lesson is about uh, when another one of those statements, except it's not on this list. Because as you'll see, the way Jesus uses that phrase uh, in the discussion that we have today is unique. Um, and we'll, we'll actually have to spend our entire time together today uh, unpacking what he means by that. So, um, so that, that's where we're at. Let's go right into our text. Um, so settle in for a little bit because we got, we got some verses to read together. As we read, um, you know, one thing that you can do is follow along with the, uh, the, the intensity of the dialogue through each phase of it. Like as the back and forths between Jesus and his audience are, are going, um, you, can, you can see a crescendo going from where it starts to uh, where this discussion ends. So let's, let's get into it. To the Jews who had, believed in, uh, who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would not do what Abraham did. Then, so, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God, God's self. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to the father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for is, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and they are the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you're demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. 
Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know God, I know God. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know God and obey God's word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So this is what we have to figure out today. What does Jesus mean when he said, when he culminated the argument by saying, before Abraham was, I am? And why did that result in the reaction that it did? So this is what, this is what we'll be going through. Now, if you are not familiar with some of the background that goes into Jesus making this kind of claim, or if you're really just following along in English and trying to understand grammatically what just happened, you could be in this situation to say, when Jesus says, I am, you'd be like, you am what? Like, how, do, how does this sentence end? Uh, where is it going? So one of the first things, then, that we have to do is figure out, okay, what, what is the nature of Jesus saying, I am? Like when he brings this up, what would his audience have heard? So to do that, we actually can go back to a part of the Torah. So this would have been the Bible of the Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking with. And it uh, evokes a story that occurs when Moses has his first profound encounter with the God of Israel. And the God of Israel reveals God's self to Moses. And Moses has this encounter, and then he's thinking about when he has to go back to his fellow Israelites and explain who he met in this encounter. He's asking God, how should I talk about you? So this is how the exchange goes. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is their name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So this is what we're going to have in our, in our minds as part of the background when we're trying to understand uh, what Jesus is saying here. On, in and of itself, in this discussion, it's actually profound and beautiful the way God describes uh, their, their identity. And that can, deserve, that can warrant its own discussion. But for the sake of today, what we have to do is unpack the way Jesus is using that story in his own discussion in that context. So if you have been following along and you're kind of mapping with um, Jesus' use of this phrase here, then you would naturally ask the question, is Jesus God, right? And so you could ask this in a couple different ways. Um, is Jesus, did Jesus think that he was God? Is that what he was saying in this context? Would his audience have uh, thought of it that way? And there are uh, a bunch of ways of working through this. And of course, I'm going to solve this question that has perplexed uh, people of all faiths for millennia. And I'm going to do it in uh, 30 minutes uh, at that. No, I'm not. So that's, that's, not, it, that's not possible for a discussion like this. But what I'm hoping to do, like we do in most of these discussions, is I'm going to offer what I think are less helpful and more helpful ways of thinking through the challenge of answering this question about, uh, is Jesus God? Um, and then part of this, uh, like part of what, what uh, bears on the challenge of answering this question is really just how much reflection this question gets 
really for people of all faiths or no faiths across many millennia. Uh, some of you already know, um, if, if you know me, you know that I was a Muslim for, the first, uh, for, for my uh, entire childhood. I became a Christian when I was a teenager. And, but I've always, my whole life, enjoyed talking to anybody uh, who wants to about deep questions about who we are, why are we here, questions about religion and philosophy. And I knew, even from a very early age, in talking as a Muslim with my friends who were Christian or Jewish or other faiths, that one of the key differences between my Muslim faith and the Christian faith of different people I talked to was the answer to this very question that we're talking about, is Jesus God? Like, that's, like there, there is so much to be said about how similar these monotheistic faiths are that you're seeing up here. And often I think we underestimate actually how much similarity there is and how much common ground there is. But one of the key areas of difference, I think, is actually right here. And this is the kind of thing where, where different people of different perspectives and different backgrounds have actually weighed in on answering this question for a very long time. Often um, as a uh, as I was growing up, I remember even um, talking to my friends who were Christians and asking them things like, if uh, Jesus was God, and if that's so important to the Christian faith, then show me where in the Bible Jesus himself says that he's God. If it's that important, surely he would have said it, right? Like that's, and it was like over and over, and off, you know, often you encounter Christians with varying levels of familiarity with their own Bible. Uh, for years, I, I uh, thought I was winning because I never got satisfactory answers to that question from, uh, from my friends who, who were Christians. And part of that challenge, uh, I think, can bear on this discussion today too, right? Like if I asked you, hey, do, does Jesus uh, say he, that he's God anywhere in the Bible? I mean, like, like explicitly say it, like write it out. Uh, he, he wouldn't have written it down, but you know, uh, somebody else heard him say it and they wrote it down. And it can be very hard to like piece together a coherent answer to that question. And this passage that we just talked about is one where it can raise this kind of question. Is this an example of Jesus identifying himself with the one true God of Israel, the God of the universe. And that's what we'll have to think through. And if he is, it also raises questions that I also uh, asked often in my childhood, which is who, what person in their right mind can walk around thinking, I am God? Like, what, how does that even work? Like, functionally, how, like, how, how does that work? How does that make any sense? Not to mention all of the questions about how Trinitarian theology might work that anybody can ask and be perplexed by, even followers of Jesus, even followers of Jesus who have specifically reflected on that question for their whole lives. So in order to unpack some less helpful and more helpful ways of talking about this issue, it helps to start with this, the, the way that... Uh, Historians, interpreters, and theologians have reflected on this question as a whole over time. And this involves the, the world of Christology. So Christology is it's a scholarly term to describe the, the study of the nature of Jesus' identity. So the, these are like it specifically bears on the types of questions that we're asking right now. And there's, a, like, if I were to give a too simple overview of how different perspectives work uh, about Christologies, you, in this world, you'll often hear terms that, that say, they, that you can say, you can have a high versus low Christology. So somebody who has a high Christology is somebody who spends a lot of time working with and starting from the premise 
that Jesus, is, uh, Jesus and the divine are very tightly connected. That Jesus, uh, it, you know, th- that m- much of the way to understand the New Testament is through the lens uh, of Jesus being God. And then if you have a low Christology, then your premise is starting from understanding Jesus' humanity and understanding all of the ways in which the, the, the text and Christian reflection talks about Jesus as a human. So in these debates about high versus low Christology, as I'm sure you've heard, right, there are people who fall uh, anywhere along the spectrum of what do they think about Jesus. Many, many people uh, subscribe to the idea that Jesus was a great guy, uh, one of the greatest, wisest teachers in the history of the world, but he never claimed to be God. It's a mistake to treat him as such. Um, and that that was actually a development over centuries that Christians long after Jesus developed, perhaps partly because of a power play to have power over other groups or religious groups uh, in the Roman world. So that perspective often comes from this, this one w- world of like scholarship like by Bart Ehrman, who, who uh, in his book, How Jesus Became God, offers his perspective, his take on how uh, you could start with an actual human Jesus, and then through legends and interactions, you can, develop, you can evolve into this theology that we have today, that many Christians have today, of Jesus being God. There's, of course, for every take out there, there's a direct response to it, um, where uh, there are scholars who will take the perspective, know the, the best account of the data is that uh, Jesus did claim to be God. That's how his earliest followers understood it, and that more or less, that's how that the Christian tradition has faithfully carried through that perspective today. There is a third perspective that's uh, not very scholarly, although I guess, I mean, it purported to have scholarly elements to it, which is kind of like the the Da Vinci Code perspective, which at this point, some of you may be too young to even know what that is. But like a couple decades ago, this was like, this is a a really popular New York Times bestselling fiction book that um, it was about uh, like... uh, like the way that art and uh, symbols throughout centuries had hidden messages about Jesus' identity and the church as a power play tried to stifle that message. Um, and uh, they, like part, of the, part of the story that is brought forth in that book is that uh, Jesus was actually, uh, he was a human, not divine in any way. He actually married Mary Magdalene. They had kids. Their eventual descendants are French uh, to this day. And um, the Illuminati are involved. I'm not joking. I think that's right. The Illuminati are involved uh, in some way uh, in all of this. And even if, like, you know, you could say, oh, like, I don't know anything about that, and I don't really, uh, like, buy into that perspective, there were, the the kind of impact that that book had was not so much that people remembered those kinds of details or took those kinds of details as their, like, accurate historical understanding of Jesus, but it did present these ideas like, well, maybe, maybe, the church did make it up. Maybe it was a power play developed over a couple centuries. Maybe that's the best way to approach it is that Jesus was a really good guy, really smart, really wise, um, but to take it anything broader than that can become very challenging. And honestly, if you read that book or even just some of the scholarship that comes from that perspective, there's, there is a, a lot of criticism that that perspective provides, they're actually very good for Christians to hear. And, uh, and it exposes, I think, a lot of problems in the way that Christians often walk around with in their uh, Christology in their own minds. 
I would say that many of us walk around with a Christology that is basically that Jesus is divine and he's barely human. He is Superman, right? Like he is, uh, he is all-powerful, all-knowing, walking around, can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He is, uh, he, you know, could probably run the 50-meter dash faster than any human ever. I, the, one of the ways that I often uh, try to test out where people's minds are in their chronology or in their Christology of Jesus is to say, like, can you imagine Jesus ever getting a math problem wrong? like just in a discussion. And your answer to that tells me a lot about what you think about the nature of Jesus's humanity and his divinity, okay? And so really, like, we, like you can see this represented just in our, in our own minds, in the way we represent Jesus in artwork uh, and in sculptures. We've talked many, many times here at Spark about just the way ripped Jesus shows up in all of our artwork because, you know, Jesus is divine, but, uh, and he is human, but his abs are not human, right? Like that's, that's you know, it's too far. This, this man was shredded before the Roman soldiers arrested him and put him on the cross. That's how it goes. And if you've, if you've been here for many of my sermons over the years, I know you're thinking, Omer, you talk about Jesus's abs a lot. And the answer is, yeah, I do. The real question is, why don't you? How do you look at that and not think, wow, those are uh, heavenly sourced abs. Like this is, this is something to take it. That's my, that's my I am statement for this series. I am obsessed with Jesus's abs. And this is, uh, and thank you for humoring me uh, in this approach. The really, like, I think what we all get is the idea that we do walk around with these idealized versions of Jesus in our mind where we couldn't possibly imagine him going through the actual struggles and uh, mistakes that humans go through every day. And of course, the consequence is that Jesus becomes this more distant figure, somebody that we can't actually connect with, that we can't actually access or relate to. And that has profound negative consequences on the way that we think about, uh, about our own relationship with God. So one of the things that we even need to level set on first is just to understand that even though the Gospel of John does offer a very, uh, a, uh, what seems like a very high Christology, one in which, like in verses that we've covered for weeks so far, talking about Jesus's origin being from heaven, right? The other, there are a couple other gospels that have birth narratives, the ones that we're really familiar with that, that stimulate our, our Christmas time imaginations. And usually it's almost always told from this like very humble beginnings perspective. The Gospel of John, on the other hand, uh, it doesn't have birth narratives, but it starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Like that's so you realize, okay, from the start, uh, the Gospel of John is saying, we, we're dealing with a human being who is not from here in the way that the rest of us are. And uh, over and over, the, the Gospel of John will often say things like, I would make a tight connection to say that uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus will talk about the Father as his Father, his unique Father. And there, you know, when you see this occur in the Gospel of John, you can even think that, like, when he says, I am from heaven, uh, that it does really lean into this idea of this Superman kind of human walking around. Even in the text that we had today, right? Like, when Jesus was talking about rejoicing, uh, or the Abraham rejoicing to see his day, right? This is, he's putting in people's minds the idea that he's pre-existent before any of this drama that they're dealing with right now, that he has a backstory, a heavenly backstory that they simply are struggling to connect with. But at the same time, 
the same Gospel of John actually goes out of its way to present a portrait of a very human Jesus that I think is actually painfully human. So it's uncomfortable how human he is for the Superman Christology that we often walk around with. So here's an example just around the, the same text that we've been going through where Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. That is Jesus presenting a portrait of himself, much like many prophets in Israel's past or miracle workers in Israel's past who say, like, I'm not doing this. The Father is doing this through me. He'll uh, flesh that out more to say, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing their work. So again, this is, this is a, a very human Jesus describing himself as like totally reliant on God to be able to do anything. And really in this, in this kind of Jesus, it resonates with uh, other kinds of uh, descriptions that other gospels uh, and New Testament writings have about Jesus that we tend to ignore, right? Like when uh, in the Gospel of Luke, when it's talking about baby Jesus, it describes him as growing in wisdom, implying that whatever Jesus, however smart baby Jesus was, uh, according to you, he still had a lot of room to grow and learn, right? Like inherently that's already presenting a very human Jesus that, that has to like learn stuff to be able to do things. There's also examples where Jesus will even say that there are things about the future that even he doesn't know, that only the Father knows. In other words, his knowledge is limited in this capacity, and really the only things that he knows, he knows because the Father has told him. There are times when he will pray, like his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he has a will, and he is praying to God for God to change God's will so that Jesus does not have to go through with what he is about to go through. But he, and of course he concedes, nevertheless, your will be done, but you have a very human Jesus saying, hey, I have an idea of how things are supposed to go here. Can it not be that way? Does that sound like Superman Jesus to you? Somebody who already knows everything, has exhaustive knowledge on how things should go? And, and it goes on and on like that, where we have these kinds of situations where, where the, the Jesus we have is, is, is uh, trying to sort together what his role is and his identity is as his mission is unfolding before him. When he is dying on the cross, one of the statements he says that we've recorded is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is Jesus actually feeling like something has fundamentally disconnected between God's will and what he was expecting to happen. Does that sound uncomfortable to some of you? I think it might, right? Like to actually dwell on the fact that perhaps Jesus didn't know as much as we thought he knew. And if you ask the question then, like from this kind of vantage point, how could Jesus walk around thinking that he's God? Who in their right mind would do that? The perspective I would put forward, and I know many people have put perspectives forward on this for millennia. The one that I would put forward is that to me it seems like Jesus understands his unique nature with God by faith, like many of us are trying to do when we are trying to understand our relationship with God in this world. It is by faith 
he understands his mission. It's by faith he's trying to figure this out. It's through faith that he's praying these prayers, asking God, is it possible that there can be another way for this to happen? That, to me, is a, not only a more sensible way to think about how Jesus, a human being, could be walking around thinking about his unique relationship with God. It also makes more sense of how a Jewish person or a Jewish audience could have possibly fathomed that uh, the Messiah could have a unique divine nature. So that, when you have that perspective, you realize there's actually quite a bit to juggle. It's not so easy to reconcile what we often think is the divine nature of Jesus and the human nature of Jesus. And just how hard that can be has manifested in so many ways over the centuries in terrible analogies about Trinitarian theology. I'm sorry, just so you know, I'm not making fun of the ways, just the ways that you use Trinitarian theology. I have used these analogies too over the years. Uh, And when I was a Muslim, I used to make fun of all of these analogies with my uh, Muslim friends. So you may have heard, right? oh yeah, the Trinity is like an apple there is the core and the flesh and the, the peel, right? And then there are other ones. Oh, the, the Trinity is like an egg. There's a yolk and an egg white and a shell. The Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. Each one is a, a distinct part, but they're combined. The Trinity is like water. It has three phases, solid, uh, liquid, uh, and gas. There was one, like, actually around the time that I became a Christian, that resonated with me at the time. And it was my friend who taught me about Jesus. And, oh, the Trinity is like Spider-Man and Peter Parker. They have separate identities. They can do separate things, but ultimately they come from the same person. What I didn't know at the time was that all of these examples, including the one that resonated with me, have been heresies at some point uh, according to church history. Like this is, this is the challenge with trying to articulate a Trinitarian theology. At some point, they all break down. And I don't mean like break down in a, oh, like it's so hard to understand God's nature breakdown. I mean they break down just like on the surface of logic, right? Like I, I have been in discussions where I both used and objected to some of these kinds of characterizations, right? Oh no, this is how the Trinity works. Jesus is God, but God is not Jesus. You see, it really makes sense if you think through it, or like one plus one plus one equals one. And it's like, oh yeah, this is divine math, right? Like I have seen all of these kinds of, uh, of examples, and really, I, ultimately, they, they weren't actually that persuasive to me or helpful to me when I was uh, a Muslim. And I will actually walk through, I think, what has had lasting impact on me uh, as I went from somebody who had a very low Christology to uh, a higher one uh, over time. So an example of just, yet another example of how uh, challenging this can get. Uh, Several years ago, maybe around this time of the Da Vinci Code as well, there was a a book, uh, a a fiction book uh, called The Shack, which was really um, a a touching theological journey uh, about a character who experiences um, this devastating suffering. And the whole book is them trying to make sense of, uh, of why those things happened uh, and what role God has to play in it. One of the really interesting things uh, about that book was that um, self-appointed protectors of orthodoxy hated it for a bunch of reasons. And part of what they claimed to hate about it was its construction of the Trinity uh, in that book. So the like so one kind of criticism from that camp was actually oh no this uh, this book actually commits the heresy 
of Unitarianism, to say that the Father, the Son, or sorry, modalism, to say that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are actually all one, um, and it's really just they appear differently to different people at different times. So that is, that's been a heresy that has been uh, um, uh, uh, described by, by churches for history. But at the same time, the same group of people also put forward the criticism, like, no, it's actually committing the heresy of tritheism, that it's actually saying that God is three separate persons and that they are not interconnected enough. Really, this, uh, the, the book becomes a Rorschach test where if you don't like it, you can just claim that it is committing any kind of Trinitarian heresy that you want. You see how unhelpful some of these discussions can be? I think there's a, I think just so you know too, part of the reason, I think the real reason that there were, uh, that, that the self-appointed orthodoxy were offended at the portrayal of God in that book was because God the Father was portrayed by a black woman and the Holy Spirit was portrayed by an Asian woman. And you know we can't have that. So that was, I think that's ultimately a lot of where, where the controversy came from. But to, to really bring home the, uh, the, the challenge here with, uh, with like the, the trying to come up with a Trinitarian theology, I wanted to share this uh, YouTube video. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning. And we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms, liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star, and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. Worse, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like... Uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. <laughs> okay, that was probably a bit much. 
All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three I layers of an animal. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? So there, there you go. I think that, that to me, when I saw that video, I think summed up the, the futility that many of us often feel when trying to think through that, that perspective. So then you could ask, well, okay, where then, how, like, how do you articulate your own perspective on the Jesus's humanity uh, and divinity? And so what I actually think is there is a, a, a world of scholarship, especially in the last few decades, that has done what I think is a, a much better job at trying to piece together uh, like a, a coherent way of thinking through this. And it does so by starting very simple. Instead of uh, focusing on the doctrinal formulations of Jesus's divinity over the years, it starts on what we can learn from the behaviors of the earliest followers of Jesus. Like, what did they do? How did they relate to Jesus? And what can that tell us about how they understood the, nature, the complex nature of of Jesus. So let's start in one of the simplest places that we can start, one of the most foundational places. This is the Shema, right? We all said it together just a little bit ago. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This is actually where much of the challenge of explaining the, the Trinity comes from. It comes from the premise that God is one, and that is, uh, that's what Jesus believed. That's what every Jewish person Jesus would have spoken to in his day believed. So how, and all of the first followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament were almost entirely Jewish people. So how did we get, how did it make sense to them? Where, how did they get to where they were? And in, uh, in part of the debate too is you, you realize that in, in the interfaith uh, discussions that, that we have about this, that Muslims actually have a very similar articulation of this Shema called the Shahada. This is a foundational uh, pillar of Islam for many Muslims. It goes, la ilaha illallah, where that says there is no God but God, right? And this is, it's very much in the same theological perspective as the Jewish one articulated above it. And that's why you often get uh, when Christians, Jews, and Muslims are involved in the same debates about the, uh, the nature of Jesus's identity, there is so many points of commonality uh, across uh, Jews and Muslims a, a lot of the time. So here's uh, how, uh, a, a way of looking at it that is much more helpful that, that has been. So there is, uh, like we talked about, some of this scholarship is actually looking at um, when did followers of Jesus start worshiping Jesus? And what do they think was going on when they were worshiping Jesus? So this is uh, from uh, Larry Hurtado, who's a Bible scholar who's an expert in this space. He says, these are the following typical features of earliest Christian worship. So he gives these examples, the singing of hymns about Jesus, the invocation and confession of Jesus, prayer offered in Jesus's name and even to Jesus, ritual use of Jesus's name in baptism, 
the sacred common meal as the Lord's Supper, in which Jesus is the presiding presence, and prophecy inspired by Jesus and uttered in his name. These practices, both individually and collectively, are without precedent or parallel in Roman-era circles of devout Jews, yet the chronology and other indicators as well show that they arose among Jewish circles in the earliest years of the Christian movement. So now we're looking at it. Well, okay, so we know that this, this type of veneration of Jesus as, as uh, deserving the kind of veneration that they had uniquely reserved to God, it happens. Like Jewish followers of Jesus made that shift and it did not break their brains. So we can ask ourselves, well, okay, I mean, I guess like it, it was their experience with the risen Jesus that caused them to behave this way first and then leave it to future centuries to work out the Trinitarian, the logic of the Trinitarian theology that we would all uh, inherit and deal with. So if you go back to the statement, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, they started with this with, uh, from the Shema, but they actually very organically perhaps, again, mind-breaking to us, very organically evolved it to encompass Jesus as a part of this Shema. So the Apostle Paul, who, occur, uh, who writes a letter to a church in Corinth, not very long after the time of Jesus' life on earth, and uh, it, like he, he explicitly gives this, uh, this statement uh, where he's adapting the Shema. He says, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Yeah, like I, I can understand centuries later, that's, that's very hard for us to, like, how did logically, how did that work? I mean, what we do know as a starting point is it did work. Of all of the things that Paul has to clarify in this letter in the church in Corinth, the things that, that his audience has gotten wrong, the things that he knows that his audience won't presuppose, this isn't one of them. He says this to his audience matter-of-factly as if he knows that this is what they've always thought, that they were able to make this transition. So oftentimes now, when I reflect on what, uh, what actually uh, allowed me to let go of my, uh, when I was a Muslim, allowed me to let go of some of these logical objections I had to the Trinity, honestly, it was, it was my experience with the risen Jesus and reading about the experience of the first followers of Jesus and their experiences with him and what it did to them and what it's done to me. That has been a far more profitable approach for me personally, than trying to articulate Trinitarian theology in a way where, can anybody articulate a Trinitarian theology in 30 seconds without committing a heresy? Uh, I don't know. It's very gold star if you can. The really, the, the, the portrait uh, of Jesus that is presented in the Apostle Paul and even the Gospel of John thinks of the Trinity not as a problem to be solved, but a union to explore. Their Christology didn't emerge from a fleshed-out Trinitarian theology. It emerged from their experiences with Jesus and their recognition that he was bringing love, peace, justice, and mercy in ways that they believed only the one true God of the universe could do. 
That's really the portrait of Jesus and God, for that matter, that, uh, that the New Testament books, in my opinion, are painting uh, consistently. In all of the divine complexity, these texts are really about a quite simple articulation. In the Gospel of John and related texts, there's an explicit theme that God is love. And Jesus is the clearest representation of that love. Naturally, from our text today, you could ask, why would anyone want to mob execute somebody who was all about love, right? That's where we started this discussion. That's what happened right after Jesus uh, shared something about his identity. And uh, that, is the, that is the haunting, challenging, baffling beauty of the love of God in the Gospel of John, which is to think about how somebody who came in pure love in representing who God is could get in so much catastrophic trouble. But if you have been following along with our series in the Gospel of John so far, you know how God's love can cause so much trouble. It was love that exposed the temple industrial complex for its commodification of God in chapter 2. It was love that humbled status quo defenders of the religious establishment like Nicodemus. It was love that centered those, uh, those who were on the margins like the Samaritan woman at the well. It was love that showed every day is a good day to heal even on the Sabbath. It was love that challenged the disciples to think bigger about how many hungry mouths they could feed. It was love that defended the woman accused of adultery from the overreach of bloodthirsty enforcers of the law. It was love that restored a blind man and dared that maybe those of us who can see are the real problem. And that's just the gospel of John so far. Jesus still has more healing to do. He's ultimately going to take on death itself. He has more centering to do, praising women for learning despite the criticisms of the people around him. He has more truth to speak to power so loudly that without even opening his mouth, rulers uh, will be exposed for what little true power they actually have. He has more sins to confront and even more sins to forgive. He has prayers to his father that we repeat to this day that show us how far God will go and how much God will give to reconcile every last one of us to God and to each other. So we say, yes, God is love. And thank God that that love looks like Jesus. This is now transitioning into our time together where we as a community connect with each other over the love that Jesus showed us in the cross and in his resurrection. And we continue the tradition that was established by Jesus' followers. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.